You are listening to a sermon from Gateway Foursquare Church in Campbell River, BC. We are so glad that you joined us today and trust that the Lord will speak a word directly to you as you listen. To learn more about Gateway, find out what's happening, or to give a gift online, check us out at www.gatewayfoursquare.ca. You are welcome to join us in person each week at 9 and 11 a.m. Now get ready. Here is this week's message. So this morning, I want to talk about Christ, our Passover lamb. And I am so excited about it because I love the Old Testament and everything. Anyway, I'm going to get ahead of myself. We're going to talk about Christ, the Passover lamb. (laughs) Um, Passover is, it's part of the Exodus event. The Exodus event um, that happened, you know, the second book of the Bible is called Exodus. It's named after that the event of people leaving, Exodus is is coming out. So uh, the story is people coming out of slavery. It's this monumental event. It's the biggest event in the Old Testament by far. Everyone who came, I mean, the Passover and the Exodus as a whole. Everyone who came after the Exodus looked back to it to be reminded themselves and to remind others of God's faithfulness, right? Their covenant-keeping God. It's, it's something that's alluded to throughout the entire scriptures, not just the Old Testament, but right through the New Testament as well. And like everything in the Word of God, uh, the story of the Exodus, um, and particularly what I'm speaking of today, the story of the Passover, a small story within the big story, that story points us to the overarching theme, the main theme, the main story of the whole Bible, which is, as we know, the the redemption of humanity by God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. (laughs) Amen. Hey. All right. It's just so good. It's so good. We serve such a good God. So if you've brought your Bible... If you don't mind opening up to Exodus chapter 11, it's the second book of the Bible, chapter 11. I have a brand new Bible, and the edges are still all sharp, and it sticks together because I haven't read, you know, through the whole thing, so I've got it printed out here. So today, we're going to look at, number one, what happened at the Passover. Number two, how Jesus fulfilled kind of the Passover, how he became the true and better Passover lamb. And then we'll look for a little bit at um, what this means to us, how it changes us. So there is a backstory, and I want to be quick because I want to get forward. But Israel was the chosen people of God. So God had chosen them. They were first, first as a family, well, an individual, then his family, and then it grew into an entire nation. And this was the people group that God chose to demonstrate his character to the world. The, the children of Israel is what we call them were chosen to be the example of not how to be, but how God is, right? Oh, and I'm going to have to juggle things. So through a series of events, the people of God end up in slavery in Egypt. I'll put it over here. Uh, As our story opens this morning, um, they had been in Egypt for uh, 430 years already. And I do want to be clear, even before I begin, that they were chosen of God. The children of Israel were God's people, but they were totally unfaithful to God. Like, 
they worshiped idols kind of as well as God, but they were not faithful to him at all. But despite their unfaithfulness, of course, the God we serve remained faithful to his people, right? And he raised up a deliverer, Moses. And Moses was sent with a message to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and the message was, let my people go. But Pharaoh, out of the hardness of his heart, refuses to obey, and God begins to unleash terrible plagues on Egypt. One after one, there were nine in total, uh, just decimated the, the nation. And after, actually not after, but before each one, God gives Pharaoh a chance to repent and to let his people go. And every single time, Pharaoh says, no, sorry, who are you? I am not letting these people go. And so our story opens at the beginning of the 10th plague. You know, we sometimes think of Passover as if it's like a standalone event, but it wasn't. It's number 10 of 10, right? So here we go. We're going to have the 10th plague. And God comes to Pharaoh through Moses for the last time and says, let my people go. And if you don't, I will bring judgment. We're going to put an E because we're Canadian. Judgment. Sorry, I'm not very, it's not centered. That's okay. Does anybody know what the judgment will be? The death of the firstborn, right? Okay, so you're at Exodus 11. Let's read verses 4 to 6 to begin. So thus says the Lord, this is Moses giving the, um, the message to Pharaoh. Exodus 11:4. thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. It's horrible. There's a, there's a bit of a symmetry here, actually, because Pharaoh, at the opening of the book of Exodus, had seen how the people of Israel were multiplying, and he feared a slave revolt, an uprising. And he came with a decree saying, every baby boy, every Jewish baby boy that's born is going to be murdered. And so there's this bit of a God saying, you're going to murder my child? Although Pharaoh killed all the baby boys, right? And God just, just was going to kill the firstborn. Okay, so God is coming with judgment. But because of the character of our God, he makes a way of escape by providing a substitute. What is that substitute going to be? Someone shouted out. The lamb. Oh, don't get ahead of yourself. It's not Jesus yet. <laughs> I feel like you know where I'm going. Okay. So let's pick up verse 3. Yes. Sorry, Exodus 12 now, verse 3. There's quite a lot of repetition because of the kind of structure. So um, we're skipping to Exodus 12 now, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel, says Moses, that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then skip to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel 
shall kill their lambs at twilight. Can you imagine the sound? Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two, the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then Moses gives a lot of instructions about the way that the lamb is to be eaten. And, you know, it, this is going to be a thing that they remember every year in perpetuity. Uh, down to uh, verse 11, he says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Why? Because God's about to come and kill, right? It is the Lord's Passover for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, interesting, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So God provides this way of escape, right? The substitute lamb. The lamb will take the judgment of God and die in place of the firstborn. And then Moses lays out some instructions how they're going to remember and observe this night. And then in verse 29, we, we see the kind of fulfillment of the promise, like it happens, what God said. So verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. Just what God said he would do. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, of course, after his son died. He and all his servants, whose sons would also have died, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Uh, Tim Chester, who wrote a fantastic study on the book of Exodus, he says this. He says, in every home throughout Egypt and Goshen, where the Israelites lived, the area, in every home, the death count is the same. The following morning, there is a corpse. The only question is, is it a lamb or is it a child? So hearing the story as a kid, I thought that the blood that was painted over the doorposts was kind of a sign to God that this is where the chosen people are, right? Like these are the Israeli, not Israel, but these are the children of Israel's houses. But that's actually not true at all. That's completely wrong according to the text. The Israelites were the chosen people, but that's not why God passed over them. They were just as guilty as the Egyptians. They were idol worshipers. God was coming to kill all the firstborn. The blood was not a sign of their innocence. The blood was a sign that a lamb had been killed, right? That they had obeyed the word of God and they had made a sacrifice of atonement. So after this last truly horrifying plague, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night, right? And he says in verse 31, up, go out from among my people. You can just hear this horror and heartbreak. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds if you, as you have said, and be gone. And then he says this heartbreaking thing, and bless me also. He's broken, right? And he's finally repenting now that it's too late. Although we're going to see soon that he changes his mind, right? And that very night, Moses leads them out in deliverance. 
in deliverance to go out into freedom in the promised land. It's a good story. It's actually a really brief account <laughs> of a giant story in the Old Testament that I encourage you to read. It's really lovely. And if you're new to the Bible, you might be thinking like, this is ringing a bell. <laughs> like I've heard some of these key words before, the blood and the lamb. I mean, we sang a lot of these words today already, right? And, and that's because, you're not wrong, that's because the Passover was, um, was foreshadowing. It was a symbol of something that was yet to come, right? So the plagues that we see in Egypt are a decreation story. This is an account of how God kind of uncreated Egypt. This is what I mean. In Genesis, when God comes and creates, he takes chaos, do it this way, he takes chaos and he brings it into order, right? He takes, he takes darkness and he brings light. He takes formlessness and void and he creates structure. And then the spirit of God hovers over the waters and he brings life, right? And now we see this story playing out in reverse. So through the plagues, God breaks down Egypt. He takes a nation that's in order and he plunges them into chaos. He takes a nation that has structure and he dismantles it into formlessness and void. The ninth plague, he takes light and he plunges it into darkness. And then finally at the Passover, we see that God again hovers over the face of the earth, but this time he's bringing death, not life. God is unmaking Egypt here. He is decreating a king and a kingdom that's raised itself up against the, the rulership and, and authority of God. And we could also say that all of humanity up to this point is also a decreation narrative, isn't it? When, see, in the very beginning, God created order. He created us to be in fellowship with God. But when sin entered the world at the fall, the order that God intended was plunged back into chaos. Perfection was broken, and in its place came sin and, and destruction. Peace was gone. God's curse in Genesis 3 is, is conflict from beginning to end. Love turned into hatred, life into death. Like, think of Esau and Cain, right? Murder right away. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, chaos entered. And we feel the effects of that today, spiritual chaos, psychological, physical, in every way, this world is chaotic. God intended us to live in freedom, but because of the fall, we were born oh, into slavery. <laughs> I set that up <laughs> to sin, right? Every one of the Israelites had been born into Egypt. Like, they had been there for 430 years. So when they were born, they inherited slavery as their birthright, we too have inherited slavery as our birthright. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. No matter how good we are, we can't escape our sin nature. We're steeped in sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All humanity is sinful. I am. You are. All humanity is sinful, and we all face the penalty for sin. And the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The cost of forgiveness is blood, right? Hebrews said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, no forgiveness for sins. As sinners, we stand 
to inherit the judgment of God. Because of our sinful state, we are under the wrath of God. And if you're here and you're skeptical about Christianity, this is probably where you're like, yeah, okay, no. <laughs> You've lost me there because I'm not into a God of judgment and wrath. I mean, come on, right? Let's be honest. God is a God of love. And yes, he absolutely is, but he is also a God of justice. And to deny that is to deny God's character. Even if you've been a believer for a long time, this is kind of an easy thing to start mixing up in our heads. We, we kind of lose sight. And I think that we believe sometimes, without putting it into words, that Jesus died to save us from the curse of Satan. No. The Bible's super clear. Jesus died to save sinners from the judgment of God. God is the only one who has the right to judge. He is the righteous judge. He is the one who is holy and worthy. This is reflected in the death or in the in the story of the Passover. It was God that sent a destroyer to kill. It wasn't Satan. It was God. It's the judgment of God that falls on sinners. It's bad news for us. So I think once we wrestle through that and we think, okay, so God is the one who's going to unleash judgment on sin, then we think, so how come he can't just forgive and forget? Like, if he's God and he's merciful, can't he just let it go? It seems straightforward, right? The thing is that forgiveness is never free. Justice carries a penalty for transgression. There is a price every time. And I, I've heard this, so I'll pass it along to you. It kind of helps to put it in human terms. So imagine that there's a terrible criminal on the loose. He's around and he's doing all kinds of terrible things to many, many people. And finally he's caught. Yeah. He finds himself in a courtroom in front of a judge. And it's like this kind of, everyone's so serious. It's a scene like this. Everyone's serious and it's, and the families of the victims are there and they're all grieving and they're also angry. And, and there's like reporters with their notepads and there's a guy sketching. Like I've, I actually only know this from watching TV. I don't know if this is true, but this is how I picture it. And, and everyone is watching to find out what's gonna happen to this criminal. So he stands up in the like witness, no, criminal ball. I don't know what you call it. He stands up in front of the judge and he totally admits, yeah, it was me. I was completely guilty. And he says, can you just let it go? And the judge says, okay, yeah, it's fine. You can go free. What would we call that just, or just? What would we call the judge? We would call him unjust. We'd call him corrupt. That's not right. Somebody has to pay the price for all these crimes, right? And, and if... If, if it's not the criminal who pays, it's going to be his, his victims. It's going to be the family members of his victims. It's going to be society who no longer can live in safety, right? Someone pays the price of crime. Waiving a penalty is never without cost. Someone has to pay for it. Someone always will have to absorb the cost of forgiveness. Our God is just he is uncompromisingly and perfectly just. The thing is, he's also perfectly and uncompromisingly merciful. But one attribute of God does not negate another. 
His justice cannot overthrow his mercy. His mercy cannot overthrow his justice. So we're in a bit of a pickle, okay? <laughs> um, where was I? Completely lost. Oh, yes, I've written conundrum. This is the conundrum that we face. We're slaves to sin. We're facing judgment. And here's some good news. Who is our substitute lamb? Jesus. Jesus. No doubt about that one. God made a way. Jesus paid the price of God's justice so that God can show us mercy. Do you remember when John the Baptist looked up and saw Jesus coming toward him? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So good. Jesus is the Passover Lamb who will become our substitute. Um, Isaiah prophesied like 700 years before Jesus that Jesus would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And I actually want to read a little bit from Isaiah 53. Initially, I had the entire chapter pasted in here, and then I was like, no, you can't. Okay, so we're going to do just starting from verse 4, Isaiah 53. And listen, if you're new to the word, if you are new to the Old Testament and it's overwhelming and intimidating, go to Isaiah 53. It's the most beautiful thing ever. There are many beautiful things. It's one of the most beautiful things. So verse 4, surely he... And he's, Isaiah's prophesying a coming Messiah that we know now is Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Can you hear the language of substitution? Listen to this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a savior we have. Christ, our Passover lamb, slaughtered as a substitute for us. He laid down his life so that we could live. And this is what we call atonement. Everyone say atonement. Atonement. His blood shed instead of ours, right? Because of, because of God's great love for us. This is the center of the gospel. We have been delivered into freedom through the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb. When his blood is applied to the figurative doors of our hearts, death and judgment pass over. I wonder if any of us need to be reminded of atonement that our debt of sin has been paid. If we have applied that blood, God is not angry with you. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, our Passover lamb. Do you remember what Jesus said when he hung on the cross? He said, it is finished, right? His work is done once for all. He set us free to live without guilt. We don't have to keep worrying. If you've applied the blood of the lamb to the door of your heart, then your debt's paid. It's already gone. He took your sins upon himself and we, we must not shoulder that burden again. It's not ours to carry. It's been lifted off. You can let it go. So I mentioned earlier that the original Passover was a decreation account. God took the order of Egypt and he plunged it back into chaos. We see the same thing. I think I mentioned maybe already that the fall in Genesis 3 is a decreation narrative. So it's the first one. We were created to be in relationship with God. But sin came into the world and brought chaos to that order. 
So without Christ, we are existing in emptiness, formlessness and void. But our Passover story, the story of our atonement, is a recreation narrative. Through the blood of Jesus, our chaos is turned to order. Our darkness is dispelled by light. Our hopelessness is replaced by meaning. And, and we went from dead to alive. And the Spirit of God hovers over us right, to bring life. We are a new creation, church. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And listen, today I'm focusing on Jesus' death as a substitute for us, his atoning work on the cross, but I don't want to leave it here without saying that he's not dead anymore, right? He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place, and then he rose again from the dead, victorious. He came back, and he's still alive. Amen. <laughs> He is seated. Oh, I could talk about it forever. He's seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places, far above all those things, the principalities. He's he all rule and authority and power and dominion. And that's why, oh, I'm so excited. That's why we read in Revelation, everywhere you turn, the lamb is there, looking as if he had been slain, right? And there's the song to the lamb, worthy is the lamb. In fact, that's why we sang today, all the elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God and sing, you are worthy of it all. He is there now, and that's the gospel. That is the solid foundation on which we stand. We can walk forward in the freedom of resurrection life through the work of atonement that Jesus did on the cross. Mm, mm, mm. It's good news to us. It's good news. And there's still more. Because when Jesus died in our place... An exchange was made. So atonement forgave our sin, covered us from death through the substitute of Jesus so that we can walk forward in freedom. But when the exchange was made, Jesus didn't only take our sin on himself. He gave us his righteousness. God made him sin, to be, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what we call justification. Everybody say justification. justification. Justification, like that. It's not only the removal of our sins, that's atonement. It's the addition of Christ's righteousness to our account. And I can't stress how important this is. I can't stress enough. In Sunday school, maybe you guys also learned, those of you that were in Sunday school, um, that justification means just as if I had never sinned. And my mother was always like, oh, yes, but that's only half of it. <laughs> Justification is just as if I had never sinned. And just as if I had also done every single thing right. Just as if I had lived with the righteousness that Christ lived with. Can you hear the difference? It's not just that I didn't do something wrong. It's just that I did everything right. Okay? So that exchange on the cross means not just that God removed what we did wrong, but he gave us what he did right. His righteousness credited to our account. So the, the Bible often uses almost like legal banking terms, and I'm like, eh, banking, but this is math I understand, because atonement takes away our sin. We're in the red. Atonement brings us into the black and gives us a zero balance. Okay, we got... Right? Math? Okay. So our debt is paid off. We owe nothing anymore. It's completely gone. We can start fresh. That's atonement. 
justification comes along and deposits like a trillion, trillion dollars into our account twice a day, forever. <laughs> and now we're cooking with gas, right? It's not just that we have no sin, it's that we have righteousness. And I often wonder if as believers, we need to be reminded more of our justification. Christ's righteousness was credited to us. Jesus didn't come along and erase our sins. Well, he did. Jesus came along and erased our sins, but he did not leave us with a zero balance. He deposited righteousness. In him, you have become the righteousness of God. And having begun in the spirit, we're not gonna be perfected by the flesh, right? As Paul says in Galatians, we don't have to work so hard. We do not have to work to gain righteousness. We don't have to work to gain approval. And you're like, yeah, are you saying that we can live any way we want to? No, of course not, because now we're alive. And living people don't act like dead people, right? We are going to do good works because that's what Christ has saved us into and our hearts are so changed. It's a biblical imperative. The difference is that the good works we do are coming from a different place. So when we're saved, we're transformed from the inside out by the amazing work of Christ. So our behavior, what we do on the outside, just reveals what happened inside. We're empowered by the Spirit to live a life that's worthy of the calling we've received. The gospel, the gospel's something that happens outside of us. It happens to us. It happens for us. It never happens from us. The gospel has happened to us, right? Okay, so it's faith. It's the faith in us that produces good works. It's not the good works that produce faith. It's a tricky thing. It's super tricky because two Christians could exhibit identical good works. They could, they could look ex on the exterior as if they are exactly the same, but they have different motivations. So I'm gonna talk to you about Christian A and Christian B. I actually wanted to give these guys names and I thought I would call them Uz and Buzz from the Old Testament because there's two brothers. <laughs> then I thought that's too silly, but now I've told you. So oh, oh, should I call them Uz and Buzz? We'll call them Uz and Buzz. Okay, so Christian A is Uz. Now I've got to write this down or I'm going to forget. Okay, Uz is a good neighbor. He, he doesn't steal. He gives to the poor. When he sees a little old lady, he helps her across the street. That's Uz. His brother Buzz is a, I can't help but say it, Uz and Buzz. His brother Buzz is also a good neighbor. He doesn't steal, he helps the poor, and when he sees a little old lady, he helps her cross the street. So we have Uz and Buzz acting in exactly the same ways, but inside, their motivations are different. So I, I wanna start calling him Christian A and B. Can I, should I stick with Uz and Buzz? I feel, I feel like it should be serious. Hands up if I should say us and buzz. Okay, hands up if I should say Christian A and Christian B. Okay, okay, we're gonna go with us and buzz. I'm surprised. There were many non-committal people here. Okay, we're stuck now with us and buzz and I regret it. Okay, so Christian, Christian A, us, so they all do, they both do good works, right? Us knows that he's a dirty, rotten sinner. He knows that Jesus died to atone for his sins and he has accepted it. Us is a Christian. 
He is a solid, believing Christian. There's no doubt about it, okay? But Uz feels a deep burden. He feels the need to repay. So he knows that Jesus died on the cross for his salvation, and Uz wants to feel worthy of that sacrifice. But the thing is, he knows he's not worthy. He's kind of like Paul in Romans 7, who's like, the things, the things I want to do, that's what I never do, and the things I don't want to do, that's what I seem to always do. You know Romans 7, right? So Buzz knows deep within himself that he is still a sinner, and he responds by working his fingers to the bone to try to please God. He's a good neighbor. He doesn't steal. He helps the poor. When he sees a little old lady, he helps her, and it's the whole time he is hoping that God is watching and keeping score so that all those good works can go onto his account to make him just a little bit more worthy. I feel like there's a lot of us's walking around. Us still struggles to overcome some sin patterns in his life. He has some strongholds. He's got some chains that he dragged along with him from Egypt. And when us falls, he is crushed by his own failure. Us fears that he is disappointing God. So Uz understands atonement. He's got that down pat. Uz does not understand justification. Let's talk about Uz's little brother, Buzz. So Buzz knows that he is a dirty, rotten sinner. Buzz knows that Jesus died to atone for his sins. Buzz is a Christian, right? Just like his brother Uz, Buzz believes in the Lord. But Buzz also knows that Jesus has made an exchange. Jesus didn't just take away Buzz's sins. Jesus gave Buzz Christ's righteousness. Buzz knows deep within that he is still a sinner. He is just like Paul in Romans 7. The things that he doesn't want to do, he seems to always do. The things he wants to do, oh, he never seems to do them. Just like us. But Buzz knows about the grace of God. And every day he marvels that God would take a sinner like him and, and make him an equal heir with Christ. Buzz is so transformed by the grace of God that it leaks out in everything he does. He's a good neighbor, just like his brother, but he's a good neighbor because God's, God's love saved his soul. And he can't wait to show that love to all around. He doesn't steal because he's confident that God's gonna supply his needs. He helps the poor because he recognizes that he himself was poor in spirit. He himself was the one that had nothing to give and God reached down and saved him through the, through the atoning work of Christ. He helps the little old ladies, right? He does these things because that was his story before he knew the Lord. He does the same things for these different motivations. And I want very, very much to add that Buzz also has sin patterns in his life. He also struggles to overcome strongholds, chains that he dragged with him out of Egypt. Both of these brothers are working hard to overcome the sin and let it go so that they can walk freely with God. The thing is that when Buzz fails, he knows he can boldly approach the throne of grace, right? He knows that, that he can, he can have a heart of repentance. He can ask forgiveness for his sins and he can rejoice in the sure knowledge 
that by one single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Come on, you guys, this is the way we wanna be. He knows, Buzz knows, that God is so pleased with him already because God looks at him and sees Christ. God is so pleased already that there's nothing else Buzz can do to add to it. He's already perfect before God. He already has God's approval, just like you do. You have God's approval. You don't need to earn it. When God looks at you, he sees the blood of the substitute lamb, Jesus Christ. He has covered your sins and he has added all of Christ's righteousness. You can be like Buzz. I can be like Buzz, right? This is how the gospel transforms us. Buzz understands atonement and he understands justification. Everything we do is affected by the finished work of Christ. It's not about what we do. It's about the motivation behind what we do. I want to live in a way that's, I want to walk worthy of the calling that I've received. And I'm going to do that because I know that Christ has given me his righteousness. I'm not going to do it to try to gain points. God's already given me the points. My bank account is so full, you can't squeeze one more dollar in there. It's, Christ has done it. Raise your hand if, no, don't do that. <laughs> that might be awkward. God has given you the righteousness of Christ. He has credited your account. You are richer beyond all imaginings. You have what it takes. You do not need to do good works to store up points so that God will be approving of you. God already approves of you. You already have the points. Your account is full. Now you can do those good works out of joy, thanking your Savior. I feel like I'm actually going to wrap it up. Um, where's Shauna? Shauna, do you want to play? I think, I think we're done. If you continue reading the story of the Old Testament, there's a really clear pattern that emerges. We see God brings the people up out of slavery into freedom in the promised land, and over and over and over they forget what he's done. They continually forget that God delivered them. They begin to worship idols. They begin to pick up those chains that they brought with them, put them back on. Time after time, God forgives them, and he extends his grace and love to them. And this is the pattern of our hearts, too. Time after time, we forget that our Passover, land, our Passover lamb died as an atoning sacrifice and gave us justification. We need to remember I really wanted to do communion today because I thought, oh, um, the last night of Jesus's life, the night that he was betrayed and the night before he died, um, he and his disciples shared a meal. It was the Passover meal, right? Coincidence? No. <laughs> the Passover lamb was there at the Passover meal preparing to sacrifice himself as our sacrifice or as our substitute. And when Jesus broke the bread, when he passed around the wine, he said, do this in remembrance of me, right? Remember what I've done. Remember how I've been your atoning work, how I've given you justification. He was just about to. The word he uses there is consume, like, like devour, devour. Um, actually, that's when he's talking about it earlier. Um, take my, 
like take my sacrifice, take my body, take my blood, consume the sacrifice that I have been, have it inside yourself, remember me in it, right? Believer, remember the death of your Passover lamb. Don't forget what he's done. And it's, it's the, the night before Jesus dies. It's his last time on earth with his disciples in the way that they had been. It's all gonna change after this. And he spends time telling them, abide in me, remain in me. Whoever abides in me, he's the one who's gonna bear much fruit. It'll be like buzz. <laughs> Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Believer, we need to abide in our savior. We need to abide in our Passover lamb to live daily in remembrance of what he did. We can be confident in his atoning work for us on our behalf. Our debts are paid. Our, our sins are forgiven in full. And not only that, but we've been justified. We can be confident that Christ's righteousness is added to our account. We serve a just God and we serve a merciful God. Our God loved us so much that he demonstrated it, you know, by sending his son to the cross. Okay, so you know what? Let's pray. Can everybody stand up? If you're able, let's stand. We want to remember what God has done for us. If you're comfortable, you can lift your hands, you can close your eyes. Lord, we come to you with empty hands. We have nothing to give. We bring nothing to the table. We have a pile of filthy rags. That's what we call our righteousness. No deeds are good enough. We are sinners in need of a savior. But thanks be to God that it's not by, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Jesus Christ, our Lamb of God, you were delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You were offered once to bear the sins of many, and we want to serve you. Lord, you have taken us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We are not the same. We are not the same. We don't want to act the same because we've been forever changed. Lord, as we lift up our empty hands to you, we know that you'll fill them. Lord, as we come to you with nothing, we know that you will give us yourself. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, you offered yourself in our place and we give you our lives. We're here to worship you and say, holy and worthy is the lamb who was slain, who was and is and is to come. Blessed are you, O God. You are the righteous lamb. You are the just and you are the justifier. God the Father laying down his son so that we could be free. God, you have loved us with an everlasting love and we thank you, we praise you. You are God alone. Blessed are you, O God on high, and mighty is your name, mighty are your deeds, and wondrous are the things that you have done for us. And I want to also give an opportunity for those of you in this room or, anybody's watch, or anybody who's watching who has never placed your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ as your substitute lamb that can take away the slavery of sin the judgment of death and deliver you into freedom. If you have never done that and you're ready to do that, what I'm gonna do is just pray and you can, you can repeat the words after me. I'll tell you what, it's not a magical formula, but Romans says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So if you're ready to take that step, I'm gonna lead and you just repeat it after me, but repeat it from your heart. This is your prayer. And Gateway, let's all, let's all repeat. So Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died as my Passover lamb to pay the price for my sin with your own blood. And I believe that you raised from the dead. And today I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and give me new life. You died for me, Jesus. And now I wanna live for you. So from today forward, I give you my life. Be my Lord, my boss. <laughs> Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the power to live for you. Today I have become a new creation. Thank you, Lord, for eternal life. In the name of Jesus Christ, my Passover lamb, amen. Ah, yes. <laughs> so good. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, don't leave without telling someone. Don't sneak out. This is something we want to rejoice with you for. The Bible says that when one sinner repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. We want to rejoice too. So tell the person you came with or come and tell me or tell somebody that knows like, looks like they know what they're doing or something. If you're online, tell us in the chat. This is something we're going to rejoice with you for. Amen. Church, we've been atoned. We've been justified and we can go and live for our savior. Let's remember him. Amen, amen. Oh, if anybody would like some prayer, if you wanna work through what you've heard or something that you're going through, come on up, we're gonna have a prayer team here at the front. Thanks for joining us today. We trust that the Lord has something great in store for you. Do you have a question or a prayer request? Send an email to info at gatewayfoursquare.ca or find us on Facebook at GatewayCR. Don't forget we gather each Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. at 403 Fifth Avenue here in beautiful Campbell River. Have a great day.